Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Seth, great to be able to catch up with you um, and kind of really focus in on sectors and stock-specific stories. I think that's what everybody's kind of finally recognizing this market is about um, in terms of being very specific in terms of what we own now, uh, just given valuations and kind of where we've been at and, and going. Um, so let, let's start with your most recent note, which is you did uh, downgrade lows. Um, give us the reasons as to why. Yeah, sure. Uh, happy to be here and happy to give you our reasons. So we've recommended Lowe's for a couple of years through Marvin Ellison, the new CEO's uh, transformation. And he's really set the company in the right direction. And I think that's been reflected in the company's results as well as the stock price performance. So our downgrade yesterday was driven by our view that the best is behind the company in this cycle. And this cycle has been on uh, you know, supercharged because of the pandemic. Last year, we saw exceptional sales from Lowe's and from Home Depot for that matter, but Lowe's sales growth is even stronger. And that's probably because of the strength in their DIY business, do it yourself, which accounts for 80 uh, to uh, 75% of their sales. Do it yourselfers were all over home improvement last year. People were picking up new projects around the home, whether it was painting rooms or uh, doing gardening, as they spent more time at home during the pandemic. Uh, now we get to a point where we're facing those tough comparisons. And while housing, which is a key driver of home improvement retail demand, is strong, it's starting to slow. And we're starting to see a slowdown in sales growth for Lowe's and for the group. So as we look at the future, the way these stocks often trade is based on that sales trajectory. And I think that sales trajectory is likely to slow more than the market does, which is the primary reason that we downgraded lows yesterday. And, you know, I think that um, people can appreciate that the year over year comparisons are going to get tougher uh, so that just by the sheer numbers, you're going to see the deceleration. But that also can lead some smart investors to take a look at the uh, the two year comp. So um, what does it look what does Lowe's look like on a two year comp, given what you believe we'll see on the sales front? Right. Even on a two-year basis, we're seeing signs of deceleration from peak levels. Uh, so we're expecting negative comps this quarter, which uh, would get us to a point where on a two-year basis, we're likely to be decelerating from last quarter. And we're looking for negative comps for the next two quarters as well. And when the dust settles in 2022, uh, we expect comps to be marginally positive. Uh, so um, that's driven partly by some of the uh, reversal of pull forward demand that we're likely to see, as well as a slowdown in housing that we're expecting into 2022. And Seth, how much of your call is currently reflected in the stock price, do you think, and, and consensus view? 
Uh, I think a good portion of it is we're neutral rate on the stock. We're not underperformed. So uh, we're not calling for this stock to go down 20% or anything like that. So uh, our view is just less bullish than it was previously. I think the stock reflects the good times that have occurred and reflects a decent outlook, uh, but not uh, the type of growth that we have seen in the past. And some analysts such as yourself will do, you know, proprietary research, obviously, um, in terms of looking at traffic and also, you know, recognizing what we're seeing in other home improvement companies. What's your read in terms of what's going on in the other companies that have already reported? Yeah, sure. Well, one of the primary leading indicators for uh, comparable store sales uh, is comparable store traffic trends. And that is the number of uh, people who make transactions at uh, the companies. And what we're seeing from a traffic standpoint is a decline. And that's reflected in some of the reports that we've gotten from some suppliers. We're likely to see a decline in comparable store traffic at Lowe's. And um, that's portending a bigger downturn in sales uh, over time. So in terms of reflection, Today, we got a, re a report from Sherwin-Williams, which is the large paint supplier into Lowe's. And Sherwin-Williams talked about their vision that sales into Lowe's being down 25% of sales year over year. So paint is a relatively small ticket item. Uh, uh, DIYers are not painting as much as they were last year. So we're seeing some pressure there. Um, other suppliers that we're watching include Electrolux, which is a big appliance manufacturer. They recently pointed to the pull forward demand effect as people were replacing appliances sooner uh, than they were in the past. So before their life ended, they would replace them because uh, they wanted better appliances. So that is basically pulling demand away from the future and uh, that will come back to haunt the likes of Lowe's and Home Depot at some point. And the other aspect, of course, as we briefly talked about is what's going on in the housing environment um, with rates perhaps lower for longer, you know, that does set up nicely for purchasing homes, but the new home sales yesterday were in fact disappointing. And, and one of the key stories, of course, has always been that uh, supply is tight. Um, but what? how do you dovetail the supply tight situation with a low interest rate environment in terms of what that might actually mean for sales going forward? Sure. So new home sales are not very important for home improvement retail. Uh, they represent a small piece of housing and most of the materials that go into new homes are not purchased through the home improvement retailers. So we focus more on the existing home market, which represents some 85% of all home sales. And the existing home market, we're seeing unit volumes stall out here and we're seeing price growth, uh, median prices be very strong, but they're likely to fade down going forward as comparisons toughen and affordability gets more challenging. We've seen affordability come in. Uh, it's now at levels that are close to historical averages on a long-term basis. And it's more and more challenging, even with rates low for the average consumer to afford homes. So I think that's gonna set up a 2022 where we see really anemic growth in housing. Hmm. Okay, so with lows, you downgraded it to a neutral. Um, I think the stock was at 197, but your price target's 210, is that right? That's correct. Okay, so still some upside. Uh, yeah, a few percentage points. Okay. Um, and, and staying within the home improvement retail space, one name though that you do like is Williams Sonoma. Um, what's the story there? Yeah, Williams Sonoma and Home Goods is really a transformation story. And there are many pieces of the story that are like 
RH, Restoration Hardware, which has been a phenomenal stock of the last few years. What we don't think investors appreciate with Williams-Sonoma is the brand power that they have. In the core Williams-Sonoma uh, namesake brand, also in Pottery Barn and most importantly in West Elm, their fastest growing brand. So with that pricing power, which has been developed through very good design and value for your money, uh, they're able to raise prices and earn higher margins and still drive sales growth. Uh, so people are now expecting margins to be flat to down after a huge increase last year. And we think that they're more sustainable, if not likely to continue to grow uh, going forward because of that pricing power. The other key part of the transformation with Williams-Sonoma is the shift to online retail. They grew up as an e-commerce or I should say catalog retailer and have been way ahead of the curve as it relates to e-commerce retail compared to most bricks and mortar based retailers. That has given them an advantage to shift their business online as consumers shop more online. And we saw a huge shift starting last year during the pandemic. So we're at a point now where about two thirds of their sales are online. And most importantly, their online sales drive higher operating margins for the company than do bricks and mortar sales. And that's very different compared to other home oriented retailers such as Bed Bath and Beyond that we cover. With that, the more we grow, uh, e-commerce sales for Williams-Sonoma, the more margin accretion there is and the margins go higher. So we're looking for that to be an important driver for the company going forward as well. If two thirds of their sales are already online, um, I mean, what's a realistic ex uh, expectation in terms of what that number will ultimately look like? And, and also what the company management wants it to look like, just given the fact that uh, having a storefront is also an opportunity just in terms of showcasing uh, new trends, I think. Right. So we think we can get to as much as 80% of the sales online, uh, depending. And that's depending on where the consumer wants to shop. There is value to having stores in many cases, especially for bigger ticket furniture purchases. And they're not going to close all their stores, but they are going to close another 100 or so stores over the next okay. couple of years. And that's going to help shift the sales more and more online. And it'll be a creative. Most of the sales that went through those stores previously will either shift online or to other stores. So we don't expect them to lose a lot of sales by closing those hundred or so stores. Hmm. That's, that's a lot of stores to close historically for any retailer. It is. Uh, I think their base is around 600 or so. Um, and so it's a material amount of their stores that uh, they're, they're closing. Um, a number of these stores are in the Pottery Barn brand and they're in malls that uh, have generated less traffic. Uh, so there's less reason to keep them open. Uh, in the West Elm brand, um, they're still opening stores rather than closing stores as a growth brand. And that brand really has a lot of firepower um, because of the attractive price points and very uh, forward design aesthetics, as well as the locally sourced uh, materials in many cases. Uh, so that really is caught on with consumers. And what, what's your read right now, though, on the consumer? Um, you know, it's it's interesting when you take a look at this this retail segment as a whole, whether it's the Home Depots and Lowe's of the world and or the more fashion oriented area of, of home and home improvement, such as the Williams Sonomas of the world. Um, is, have people shifted from doing kind of the, the, the home Lowe's job, Home Depot Lowe's? And, and now kind of dressing up what they've done in the past or how, how are you, why is this such an area that you are positive on? 
Well, the consumer we think is still healthy. Um, it, it varies by segment of consumer, however. We've seen consumer confidence improve from the bottom last spring for both higher income and lower income consumers. Uh, the higher income consumer has been less impacted by the pandemic. Uh, there have been fewer job losses for that consumer. Um, and they've been able to do more work from home. Uh, the lower consumer doing more service work uh, has been more impacted, but they've also been supported by the government. And we've seen those fiscal stimulus payments uh, help. We've seen the child tax credit, which is going out now, uh, likely to continue to help. Uh, so there is this uh, support which is working and which is positive for the economy overall and for consumer spending. As we think about the stocks that I've been talking about, Williams-Sonoma for one, they serve middle to upper income consumers. Uh, so those consumers have had more spending power and have been interested in improving the design, the furniture, the layout of their homes as they spent more time there. And we don't think that focus on the home is going to go away entirely. It is going to fade a little bit as people get more back to work, et cetera. But we don't think that's going away. So the consumer is relatively healthy here. And that's positive for home goods retail. And how are their um, sales comparisons, their comp sales comparisons? Williams-Sonoma, uh, their comp comparisons do get more difficult going forward. Uh, we're looking for very strong comps, though. Um, it, this quarter and for the full year, we're still expecting them to be able to grow comparable store sales by a high single digit percentage. Hmm. Okay. Um, and one thing that I always look at when you take a company like a Williams Sonoma or, or even Gap in the old days or intimate brands with Joan Victoria's Secret, Bath and Body Works, et cetera, um, is, is making sure that each of their different verticals or channels or brands, I should say, um, are able, in order for the stock to work, many times all three brands or two brands or whatever it is has to, have to be working um, as opposed to being a blemish on the quarter. With Williams-Sonoma, what is the strong, it sounds like West Elm is the strongest brand. Do you have concerns though about Pottery Barn or the Williams-Sonoma storefront? Would they, could they pull back any kind of stock movement? That's a really good point because one of the big inflections we've seen for the company is improvement in both of those two brands, Pottery Barn and Williams Sonoma. And the Pottery Barn improvement has come from merchandising more than anything else. Uh, starting a couple of years ago, they started coming out with uh, pieces of furniture that were designed for small spaces. They really helped introduce younger consumers into the brand uh, who traded up from things like West Elm because uh, it's a little bit higher end. And I think that has been powerful and there's still legs there. With the Williams-Sonoma brand, they've introduced more own brand merchandise. So the Williams-Sonoma branded merchandise, whether it be kitchen tools or pots, et cetera. And that brand does have uh, a fair amount of stature in the marketplace. So it's helped attract consumers and helped create loyalty and helped improve margins for the brand. Uh, so I think that's been an important driver. Now they're extending that Williams-Sonoma brand uh, more aggressively into areas like furniture. And I think that there are some legs there. So we have a lot of opportunities within the core Pottery Barn and uh, William Stoma brands as well. Hmm. Um, and what's reflected in the in the valuation? Where does it trade these days? So it trades at a mid-teens multiple of next 12-month earnings. And that is uh, pretty attractive for a company that we think has underlying earnings growth, at least in the mid-teens. So hmm. on a peg basis, pretty fairly valued. Uh, one to one, uh, but we think that there is opportunity for 
multiple expansion when you consider the fact that this is a retailer that's shifting more online, as I mentioned, and it's easier to drive growth in an online business than it is in a bricks and mortar business. So we think the growth could actually stay stronger for longer because of that. Interesting. That's a, that is a, sounds very attractive on a multiple basis. Yeah. Uh, relative to a number of uh, other companies in the hard lines universe, it's attractively yeah. valued. And I think that one of the reasons why is because of the skepticism associated with the margin gains that they've made over the course of the past year or two and the stickiness associated with those gains. So there are a lot of non-believers around those Gains, in addition, there are a lot of non-believers about the relative margins within the e-commerce segment versus the bricks and mortar segment. Hmm. Uh, and what's your price target on it? Uh, that's a good question. I don't have it right in front of me. <laughs> yeah. um, I'll circle back and I'll send that out. Um, sh shifting focus here a little bit. Um, you know, I think that everybody's been pretty astonished about the... Um, the auto market and um, the tight supply that we've seen there and, and you know whether or not there's still opportunities in that category or not. What, what's your view? Um, because it does seem as though you're maybe perhaps a little bit more negative than the consensus call on CarMax. Yeah, sure. So first of all, I checked our price target is $175 on Lane Sonoma. So there is okay. a fair upside from current levels. But in terms of our view on the auto market, the auto market uh, is one that is strong, but one that is also starting to see signs of peak. Um, we've seen inventory constraints, particularly on the new vehicle uh, side of the industry because of semiconductor production uh, uh, constraints. And that's led consumers to more frequently choose used cars. And as they choose used cars, it's bid up pricing for used cars such that the gap between new and used car prices is very narrow relative to history. And the narrower that gets, as long as they're supplied, you're gonna see consumers opt back uh, to new. But we don't see that new car supply uh, situation change for that demand dynamic in used cars to change. And I think that will occur over the next six to nine months um, as some of these semiconductor roadblocks uh, get taken care of. But as we think about the key drivers uh, beyond that of used car demand, uh, one of the big drivers that we've seen over the course of the past year is people preferring private transportation versus public transportation because of the COVID pandemic. And I think as we get the vaccine rolled out more and more across the, company, the country and we get people more comfortable taking public transportation, some of that demand drive will dissipate as well. Uh, so the other key thing to think about is from the pricing dynamics I mentioned before. From a pricing standpoint, we're likely at the peak for used car prices. We're seeing signs based on the Mannheim Index uh, that prices are starting to uh, decline on a monthly basis. And by the end of the year, the index is forecast to be down nine percentage points or so from the mid-year peak. And with that, uh, we think that will uh, weigh on the used car uh, retailers as they have a little bit more difficulty earning really strong profits on the units that they're selling. Okay. So for CarMax as an example, um, your numbers are quite a bit below consensus. They are a bit below consensus, um, not dramatically, but they are below consensus. Uh, the key metrics we look at for CarMax are used unit comparable store sales. And then we look at gross profit per unit and we look at overall EPS. Uh, but there are a couple of things that are still working in their favor right now um, for the current fiscal quarter, one of which is their finance business. All consumer finance businesses right now are very strong with really low loss rates and very wide spreads. 
on the loans that they're making. So that will provide some extra earnings juice. And then on the gross profit side, I mentioned before that um, there could be some pressure on gross profit per unit, but right now um, uh, we're still seeing excess profits because of those spreads on vehicles between what uh, the retailers buy them at and what they sell them at is pretty wide. So that metric should be supported. But the used unit comparable store sales number, we think has a little bit of risk this fiscal second quarter, uh, which ends in August. And we'll be continuing to track our data closely uh, on that most important metric. Okay. Um, and, and staying within the auto market, uh, talk to us a little bit about Vroom, uh, which did go public last year. Um, what, what's the company about for those who don't know? And, and you do like it and why? Yeah. Exactly. So unlike a company like CarMax, which is trying to uh, adapt and adopt uh, to the new reality, Vroom has started its business in that new reality. And that new reality I'm talking about is consumers' interest in purchasing vehicles online. Uh, just like purchasing many other classes of consumer goods online, um, vehicles are now one of them. And it's gotten a late start. We're only talking about one or two percentage points of cars that are purchased online right now, but Room is the second largest player in the space behind um, Carvana. And so they have developed a very good online platform to attract demand, and they have developed a very good uh, um, infrastructure behind the scenes to acquire the used car inventory, recondition it, and deliver it to customers at their door. Um, so it's a convenience and value play for the consumer, and for the company, um, it's a huge growth opportunity as the penetration of online sales increases because that's what consumers want. Now for Vroom, they've had some troubles out of the gate since they came public last year, some operational headaches. Used car retailing is an operationally intensive business, particularly when you're scaling at rates of 100% type growth. So they got in over their skis on inventory, weren't able to recondition it uh, more quickly enough and uh, had to mark some of it down and uh, resell it through their wholesale channel, for example. Didn't have quite enough staff to handle the volume of calls that were coming in and to process uh, vehicle sales, particularly all the paperwork behind the scenes. Uh, so that led to some headaches, especially in last year's fiscal fourth quarter and rolling into this first quarter. But those headaches are largely behind the company and we're starting to see much better execution. We saw a uh, very good result exiting the first quarter and we think that we're gonna see strong results in the second quarter too. Most importantly, uh, investors are not giving the company stock the credit it deserves in our view from a valuation standpoint. It's trading at a few multiple points difference in terms of EV to sales relative to the leader Carvana. And we expect that valuation multiple gap to narrow as the execution by the company's management team improves. Hmm. Uh, a lot there, Seth. Uh, I'm just looking at Vroom stock right now. VRM is the ticker trading at 37.79 today, and it, it's down five and a half percent. I mean, I might my my little system might be delayed, but it's down today. Um, it is, and, and the chart looks pretty volatile as well. Yes, it has been volatile, um, and the stock. Um, since the last quarterly print has been up and down. And there have been some concerns raised among investors about some of these bigger picture trends I've talked about, slowing growth uh, for auto retail overall, gross product unit not being quite as strong as wholesale pricing comes in. But one of the other things that's unique to Vroom here that has raised concerns is that they did a big capital raise uh, about a month ago. 
and they don't need the additional capital right now. Uh, so that raised some eyebrows, and that is uh, one point uh, that, that investors are mulling over. But fundamentally, we do think that the business is improving and uh, should be uh, reflected in a higher stock price because it's at a decent valuation right now over time. As it relates to today's price action specifically, I don't have a good explanation as to what's driving it. There's been a number of um, uh, you know, odd moves in the marketplace today. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. Um, in, in terms of their their business model, and um, I'm just kind of looking at some of the numbers now. I mean, their revenue has grown significantly, but you know, talk to us about how they make money um, because the operating income. And net profit margin looked to be on the weaker side. Right. That's been a knock against this stock for sure. And it's been a knock against Carvana. Well, you can see Carvana's stock price has been quite strong recently. And especially from the time of its IPO um, a couple of years ago at you know, less than, I think it's $15. And the stock is now uh, well, well, well north of that uh, in the 200 and, or $330 range. So, uh, and Carvana still doesn't really make money. So what's the deal here? The deal is that these companies are still in their infancy. So they're investing in growth. And over time, uh, they're likely to grow into profitability, so to speak, because there is a high level of fixed costs needed to operate these businesses, even though they're online and don't have too many bricks and mortar locations, with the exception of their reconditioning facilities. Uh, they do have a fair amount of overhead to process sales um, uh, and whatnot. So that impacts their operating margins. But if we look at it on a per unit basis, which investors often do, so each time they sell a car, how much money they're making uh, just on that unit itself before some of these overhead expenses, uh, the picture looks much better. The gross profit per unit is improving materially for Vroom uh, and is likely to follow a trajectory like it has for Carvana. Um, and as that rises, because they're getting more efficient with things like reconditioning, uh, vehicle transportation, and pricing, uh, they're likely to expand profit per vehicle and eventually grow into profitability on the bottom line. Is there, well, what are the risks? I mean, is there a risk that uh, other car manufacturers can cannibalize them by, you know, obviously just being online themselves or, or other more established auto dealers of sorts, even, even though I hear, you know, what you're saying in terms of coming at this without a legacy issue. Yeah. So I think the biggest risk for this stock is execution. We've seen the bumpy ride of uh, the management team uh, since the company came public. And if there are more hiccups, I think that'll lead to less investor confidence. Don't get me wrong, as I mentioned before, this is an operationally challenging business and Carvana has done a very good job in the last two years managing its growth, but in its first year as a public company, it stumbled as well operationally. So it's not like uh, anybody's immune to some of these effects. Um, so that would be risk number one. Uh, the other risk I would point to, as you did, is competition. So uh, all auto dealers are going after the online business. They're developing online solutions to sell vehicles. Um, however, uh, very few of them have the capital and wherewithal and expertise to offer a solution as comprehensive uh, and um, uh, as good an experience as Vroom and Carvana uh, do, for example. Uh, so competition could come in the form of more aggressive pricing by bigger companies that want to make it more difficult for the likes of Vroom and Carvana. But right now, we don't think that's a big risk. 
So I would put those two risks at the top of the list, but I think that that second one is not critical right now. The biggest one we're watching is execution. So it's a bit of a management story. You're buying into management or not. Fair? Uh, yeah, uh, certainly. The secular trends are in your favor um, and, and the competitive environment is pretty good. Uh, so it's all about how well they execute to take advantage of that secular opportunity. And Seth, uh, listeners should understand and know that someone such as yourself as an analyst and also people on the buy side, they often have um, uh, conversations with company managements. Um, you obviously, I would assume, have had and you're confident in the team. Are you? I am. Yes, I am confident in this management team. Um, the CEO came over uh, from uh, the online travel industry, he's an expert in marketing, and he's developed a very uh, solid team around and underneath him uh, for the auto retail expertise that's necessary to run this business. Okay. So Vroom, um, Kent, uh, trading at 37 bucks or so, 38, what, what's the price target there? We can. Our price target on Vroom is $60. So a huge amount of upside if they're able to execute. Okay. Uh, just shifting focus here. Um, one more story that you're taking a look at is in the mattress space. Those stocks can be very, very volatile. It's pretty amazing. So, um, Temper Sealy, though, um, what's the story there? TPX is the ticker. You like it. Yeah. Temper Sealy is the largest uh, mat mattress manufacturer in the world. Um, yeah. recently surpassing uh, a private company named Serta Simmons, which are household names. Um, and they have a couple of the most premier brands uh, in the mattress industry, Tempur-Pedic being uh, first and foremost, the luxury brand, and then uh, Sealy uh, being the primary mainstream brand. And uh, they are doing a fantastic job relative to the industry in terms of managing growth in a very high demand environment. And we think those brands are going to continue to help drive their growth in the future as there's innovation that supports um, those brands and there's great marketing behind those brands. So we expect Tempur-Sealy to continue to gain market share um, and we expect them to continue to grow internationally as well, which will be an important driver in 2022 and beyond. Uh, but the most important thing to think about right now for Tempur-Sealy is the demand environment. As I mentioned before, and we talked about in the home retail or home improvement retail space, there's concerns about a slowdown. Uh, we're not seeing as much of a slowdown in mattresses. There might be a very small slowdown, but we're still talking about significant growth off of the 2019 base. And the challenge is uh, meeting that growth in terms of supply. And right now, heading into the company's second quarter results, which will be printed on Thursday morning. Uh, there's likely that some supply chain challenges have emerged in recent weeks, which will dent their sales growth going into this third quarter. Um, we think it's transitory and we think the companies can be over, able to overcome them, but they're not immune to things like uh, chemical production shortfalls. And that chemical goes into the foam that they produce that goes in their Tempur-Pedic mattresses. We've picked up uh, indications that they are delaying deliveries of Tempur-Pedic mattresses to consumers who order them on their websites uh, by a few weeks compared to the normal uh, seven to 10 days. And our checks with retailers also indicate that shipments are being delayed as well. So you have this supply constraints dynamic, which will constrain their sales, but the demand is really strong. And I think they'll be able to fulfill that demand uh, certainly by the end of the year, if not by the end of October or early November.
And Seth, why are these stocks so volatile? I mean, I haven't looked at them, quite frankly, probably over the past year as much as when they first uh, IPO'd. But there was a lot of movement. Why is that? Yeah. So the sales trends for these companies can be somewhat volatile. You think of mattresses as a relatively uh, discretionary purchase. You don't need to buy a mattress tomorrow in many cases, unless you're moving into a new house and you don't have an old one or you're moving to a college dorm room, for example. So uh, that can lead to some fickleness on the part of consumers. Advertising makes a big difference to sales. New products make a big difference to sales. So that's created a lot of volatility. But generally speaking, they're pretty good cash flow businesses. And in this environment, uh, they're very strong sales businesses. The last thing I'd point out on temporary Sealy is valuation. Uh, valuation for this company is attractive, especially on a PE basis, as the company continues to buy back stock with a lot of excess free cash flow. It's trading about 14 times earnings. And that compares to another premier name brand at the luxury level in our space, like RH, which trades at uh, valuation multiple, about double that. So if they start getting credit for the brand power that they have in Tempur-Pedic, I think that the stock's valuation will also materially rise. And where is investor sentiment as it relates to the mattress stocks? So it's waned. I'd put it uh, a little bit bearish if I had to put it in one place or the other. Um, and that's because of the cycle. Uh, so there's concern that the cycle has peaked, like I mentioned before, with home improvement. And with that concern, um, sentiment has come in. And I think that's reflected uh, partly in the valuation too. So as I also mentioned, the longer for stronger theme within mattresses is likely to be uh, better than it is in home improvement, for example. And the reason being from our perspective is the consumer's increased focus on health and wellness. Uh, certainly the pandemic helped spark that, but I don't think that theme is going to go away with the pandemic. Okay. And um, just to kind of wrap it up here, the top ideas, William Sonoma, Vroom, and Temper Sealy. Um, do you, when you, I mean, do you, when you meet with clients, do you rank order them in any way, or does it really just depend on what type of uh, investor they are as it relates to market cap size, et cetera? Certainly those factors matter, but in our absolute ranking, we put Vroom at the top and then we put William Sonoma I mean, sorry, then we put, um, yeah, William Sonoma and then uh, Temper Sealy. Those would be the rank order. Okay. All right. Seth, that was really interesting and really helpful. Um, thank you for, for sharing your, your thoughts sure. and stock ideas. Appreciate it. Yeah. It's great. Happy to do it. Uh, enjoy talking to you and look forward to talking again in the future.